Good evening. Wisdom Eccentrics by Nakchang Rinpoche, Chapter 3, Part 2. The honour word caused ill-concealed ridicule. My freedom of choice was that of a lunatic. They re regarded me as a prim moron with hard-wired Victorian ethics. I was in Forsyth Bazaar, but I was right out of the Foresight saga. And moreover, I was someone who'd offered some sort of insult to the Dalai Lama. I was obviously nonplussed by this idea, and so one of the males of the party regaled me with a fearsome warning. And you must know that people are being abducted and having their human oil extracted. Apparently there were foul and cunning Indian necromancers abroad. They've been seen, man, on the road between Forsyth Bazaar and Dharamasala. They wear red turbans and carry red bags. I sat and listened, wondering what chemicals they'd ingested before they arrived at Yashe Dorje Rinpoche's place. It's serious, man, like really. So you should know, victims are captured, drugged, stripped and hung upside down over a low fire until oil drips into the pan. That's what they keep in their bread bags. Yeah, man, added a female from the party. It's boiled and bottled for black magic rituals. Everybody knows and no one's wandering about on their own right now. So you'd have to be out of your mind to keep coming up here every day when you could have the protection of his holiness. Well, that was a thing and no mistake. How was I to respond to that? Right, well, I think I'll just take my chances. It's your fate, you bourgeois materialist, they spluttered in irritated disbelief that left me no choice but to quote blues. You know, I've already been to the crossroads, so I got a black cat bone, got a mojo too, got Johnny Conqueroo, I'm gonna mess with you. No one's gonna get my oil unless I'm frying chips. At that, they snorted with derision and left. What was it about these people that made them believe in almost anything? How could I explain my position? It seemed as if I were always on the cusp of two worlds, the world of Western scientific rationalism and the world where anything is possible. The problem for me was that I had no idea how I cut the deck, so I had nothing rational to offer. There was the world of visionary appearances and the world of hard facts. I knew there was a crossover and I was exploring that crossover, but I had no interest in absorbing ghoulish mythological structures as part of my raison d'etre if they obstructed my freedom of choice. If I were to take some visionary idea on board, I'd have to choose to do so for reasons that were personally meaningful. There'd have to be an experiential, experiential linkage with something or someone 
that was powerful enough to shift me out of my habitual paradigms. I saw the insulted inges in MacLeod Gans from time to time and they made a point of sneering at me whenever they saw me. I wondered at their persistence in this till I realised they must be locked into school playground behaviour of some sort. It didn't worry me. In fact, I gradually came to find it amusing. I smiled whenever we crossed paths and bid them good day, but they never replied. I met a fair few inges like this, people who demand that you adopt their socio-spiritual mores on pain of excommunication. I thus attended the Majumika class at Gangcheng Kishong as a pariah. There were a few people who liked me, mostly explorer types, but they couldn't understand why I was bothering myself with Tibetan Buddhism. They seemed able to allow me to be what I was, however, and so conversation remained possible. Meetings with socially malfunctional Western aspirants sadly became more common as time went on. I was attending a Trumanakmo Tsokkolo at Yeshe Dorje Rinpoche's place in 1982. It was in his new dwelling out on the Karadanda Road. It was marvellous, of course, but I had loved his old place. The wind whistled in the wooden slats of the ramshackle hut there and the smell of pine resin rose and fell. A rolling tide of strange fragrance punctuated by the smoke of burning pine needles. Anyhow, the new place was larger and better appointed. In the meal breaks, the Western Dharma students who'd called in to join the Tsokkolo talked about the Lamas they'd met. They talked about empowerments and teachings they'd received. They generally communed in a way that allowed no welcome to an outsider, or even to an Englishman who might have been an old visitor to Yeshe Dorje Rinpoche's Gompa. It was, alas, the usual tawdry festival of one-upmanship I'd come to expect. I hardly spoke a word. I found little enthusiasm for participation, although I tried my best not to seem standoffish. They largely ignored me, and I was actually content for that to be the case. I took my ease, gazing at the large photograph of Kyabje Dujum Rinpoche and taking in the new wonders of the shrine room. Evening drew on and one by one the Dharmites left. I was eventually left in the sole company of a girl and she fell to talking with me due to the absence of other company. She asked my name, I gave it. She asked if I was headed back to Dharamasala. I'm only going as far as MacLeod Gange. The Western Buddhists called MacLeod Gange Dharamasala even though Dharamasala is the name of the Indian town some miles down the road. In fact, that town is actually Upper Dharamasala, 
And Dharamasala proper is it at, is at an even lower altitude still. It turned out that she meant MacLeod Gand, and she was happy she'd have company on the dark track that led back to the village. Walking in anything less than daylight is never entirely safe in some parts of India and Nepal. People are mugged and murdered even to this day, so I was quite content to escort her. I was somewhat less than content to be embroiled in further spiritual discussion of the type I'd avoided earlier, so I probably proved a trifle laconic. This didn't please me, as it felt unfriendly, so I spoke of the things around me. The light was dimming, but there was still a wealth of shapes to be seen. I commented on the beauty of the trees with their twisted roots. I commented on the cries of the various birds that found their homes in the trees. I tried, as best I could, to be affable on ordinary subjects. She, however, kept pulling the discussion back to areas I'd avoided back at Yashe Dorje Rinpoche's Gompa. I'd privately designated that kind of conversation as Lama Karma Drama or Lama Karma Dharma or Pranayama Pajama Panorama as it was espoused by the followers of Swami Upananda. Suddenly she burst into tears. I asked her what was wrong and she told me how lonely she was in India. I came to India thinking it would be wonderful but no one wants to know me or talk to me even. Western Dharma students were often self-satisfied elitists who excluded her because she didn't know enough. I'm sorry, I replied. I do know what you mean. Do you find me like that? She shook her head. No, but it's not easy having a conversation with you either. Ah, about the shapes of trees and stuff. Well, yes, I don't know what to say to that. You can say anything, whatever comes into your head. I'm certainly not going to judge you or try to be clever at your expense. Really? she asked with a degree of pathos. Yes, really. I'll respond to most things apart from lugubrious llama listings and interminable initiation inventories. That stuff really does not interest me. I'd rather gnaw my own goddamn leg off than have people incessantly name-dropping, I continued. You may remember, I didn't say much back at Yeshe Dorje Rinpoche's Gompa. I did try to speak about the amazing sound of the Tantric Orchestra, the Rolmo and Silmien, but no one wanted to take me up on that. She nodded. Yes, I remember. I was going to ask about that, but the conversation moved on. Someone said something about spiritual materialism, whatever that means. Yes, that was quite funny. 
The term spiritual materialism, you know, was coined by Chugyam Trumpa Rinpoche. Most people, however, don't seem to understand what it means. Trumpa Rinpoche was referring to the way people convert spirituality into materialism by concretizing it, by making territory out of what they know. So, from their point of view, liking the sound of Rolmo is spiritual materialism, but reeling off the names of lamas is... what? I see what you mean. I'm not trying to say that I'm not a materialist. Good gracious, no. I'm a card-carrying materialist from way back. I probably like objects more than most. I lust after all kinds of things, but I'm not interested in proving anything by it. Right, no one I've met on the spiritual path has ever admitted to being a materialist before. Well, I'm content to be an ordinary materialist. It's so much simpler and more convenient than being a spiritual materialist. I'm not trying to say that I'm special in any way. It's just that spiritual materialism bores me rigid. So it's not exactly a great accomplishment not being involved with it. I see. Well, that's interesting, although weird. I did notice that whatever you said, they always moved the conversation back to talking about empowerments and teachings they'd received. At this point, I told her one of my favourite Jewish stories. One day in the shul, the Rebbe, seized by the impulse of the moment, threw himself on the ground and declared, Lord, I am nothing but dust and ashes. Now, it just so happened that the cantor observed the Rebbe's religious zeal and thought he'd better get in on the act. This was obviously the thing to do. So after a discreet interval, he threw himself on the ground and declared, Lord, I am nothing but dust and ashes. Now, off to the side, the janitor, busy with cleaning duties, happened to observe both the Rebbe and the cantor. Being a man of initiative, and never backward about coming forward, he decided to emulate the zeal of his superiors. He threw himself on the ground and declared, Lord, I am nothing but dust and ashes. No sooner had he made his proclamation than the cantor turned to the Rebbe and said, Look who thinks he's nothing but dust and ashes. The lady found this story most amusing and, set in the form of a joke, she seemed to get the idea pretty well. I've seen a lot of that since I've been in India, she commented. But isn't it weird that there's a joke about it in Judaism? I'd imagine there's a joke about it in every religion. It's a shame that people allow themselves to see some advantage in that kind of behaviour. I'd hoped that Dharma would be free of it, but the desire to be listed in the who's who of Vajrayana and the Burke's peerage of Buddhism seems to reign supreme, I grinned.
And yet, you're wearing robes. Yes, I'm wearing robes and I do actually have a lot of interest in lamas, teachings and empowerments, but it depends on how it's being discussed. When it's the rhetoric of rivalry, it makes everything tedious, even things that would otherwise interest me. Well, that's refreshing, she opined with a smile. But doesn't that mean that you always find yourself in the same situation with no one wanting to talk to you? I burst out laughing at that point. Yes, just like you, it seems. But you don't mind? No, I don't mind. Well, I used to care. But now I'm used to it and it no longer matters. I always try to be friendly with everyone I meet, but when I'm cold-shouldered or rebuffed, I get on with life on my own. Doesn't it make you angry to be treated like that? No, I chuckled. I find it slightly comical. Comical? How can that be comical? Well, it's the predictability of it. I speak in a friendly way, ready to be friends, and I wonder whether this new occasion will be different. Then I'm repulsed as some sort of reincarnation of the Lone Ranger or Biggles, and, well, I find the inevitability of it funny. We chatted as we walked down the track, and eventually rolled into MacLeod Gan's village, where she offered to buy me a meal. I accepted. I was hungry. Money was extremely short. Over dinner, she asked, Tell me, how do you square being a materialist with being a Buddhist? <laughs>